Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Welcome to this week's episode. Today, we're talking about Meta's roadmap leaking and they're canceling the Quest Pro 2. We talk about an update to AI and the future of chatbots. And we're celebrating the Nintendo Switch turning six. All right, topic number one, Meta's roadmap has leaked and sort of the biggest stuff we're seeing from it are the uh, MetaQuest 2 gets a price drop of $70 for the 256 gigabyte version. So it now costs $430. The entry level version, which was 128 gigabytes of storage, still costs $399. Something else, they have canceled the MetaQuest Pro 2. That's only six months after the original Quest Pro launched. Didn't get the best reviews. Everyone said it's overpriced. Well, they've dropped the price by $500. So now it only costs $1,000, only $1,000. And they've decided to cancel the follow-up that was supposed to come out in 2024. Also, Meta seems to be working on a Quest Lite, which should be coming out in 2024. It will cost about $300 like the original Quest. And they're also working on AR glasses that are going to be controlled by a neural interface. And that's supposed to come out in 2027. Now, I guess the biggest thing is, or the biggest two things are, the Quest 3 is coming out this fall. So Meta is apparently laser focused on the release of the Quest 3, which is why they've canceled the Quest Pro 2 because no one seems to care about a sequel to that. And hey, the Quest devices are what's leading their company right now. That's what's doing the best for them in terms of AR, VR devices. So they are laser focused on their next device, the Quest 3, like I said, coming out this fall. It's supposed to cost around $450. So a bit of a price bump from what the Quest 2 is selling at right now. But, you know, some key features of this upcoming device, it's supposed to launch with over 41 new apps and games. It's supposed to be twice as thin as a Quest 2. And it's also supposed to offer mixed reality experiences like the Quest Pro. You know, it's going to feature front-facing cameras. So when you think of things like their AR pass-through mode, how you could have virtual screens either for your laptop or your desktop, or you even maybe even like your uh, your gaming devices, virtual screens projected on walls in front of you, or just in front of you, you know, just anywhere you are. So it seems like a compelling device. The Quest Two is obviously an amazing device for Meta. I think they've sold like twenty million units up to date, something like that. So to continue that lineup obviously makes sense, and then making it a little bit more premium, but not so much that you're raising the price drastically. I think if you add this pass-through mode, if you add a little bit of, you know, some AR features, not to mention you make it thinner and it's only $50 more expensive. I don't know. I think that's a pretty fair price adjustment. I think that's a pretty fair price jump. Not to mention new apps, new games that are allowed by this AR pass-through mode. But uh, from what you've heard about the MetaQuest 3 and, you know, some of these new features, do you think that this warrants a $50 price jump? Do you think $450 is reasonable or do you think they've they've kind of missed the mark on this upcoming device? I mean, I think it depends. It depends uh, completely on if any of the flagship kind of tech that is in the Quest Pro can kind of trickle down. So maybe we get a little bit more power in terms of 
you know, the integrated headset, the power that's involved in that. Um, maybe they keep it the same to keep the price down. Maybe they add the controllers that contract themselves. Maybe they keep the regular Oculus Touch controllers, or I guess Meta Touch controllers now, or Quest Touch, whatever they call them now. Uh, controllers that are just using the inside-out tracking that the current Quest 2s use. Uh, to try to keep the price down. It, it depends. Uh, I think the biggest thing is going to be what they do with the displays. Because I think, I don't, I can't say this for sure, but the, mo- the moment I heard this news, my first thought is this is a direct response to the incredibly positive feedback that people have been getting and, and responses that people have been getting about the PSVR 2. It is, you know, when it was a first announced, especially the price was first announced, people were very... Uh, on, you know, not really happy with that. It, it was more expensive than the last version. Obviously, you were getting more stuff packed in. You were actually getting controllers packed in. And it was a much better tech-wise uh, piece of hardware than the original PSVR was. But it was still kind of expensive considering that it was something that you also needed to connect to a PlayStation 5. Uh, it wasn't something that you could use on its own. It's not something that you can use with your PC right now. Hopefully, that will change. But right now, it's not the case. So it was kind of a very expensive device. and But despite that, people love it. Uh, anyone who's got their hands on it, has reviewed it, have talked about the hardware is fantastic. And the displays are fantastic. 2K per eye OLED, high refresh rate screens. Something that, you know, even the Oculus Pro can't compete with. So yeah, it, it really depends on whether or not they can capture some of that more high-end kind of tech whether it's in the displays whether it's in the controllers or whether it's in the processing of the device to make it uh uh worth that extra cost what i think would be really cool for meta to do is uh maybe detach somehow the processing of the headset and the rest of the headset if the processing could be in some kind of module, because I think this is kind of the worrying thing about the Meta Quest line. We saw this when they went from the Quest 1 to the Quest 2, and we're potentially going to see this again when they go from the Quest 2 to the Quest 3, if there is any performance upgrades. It's that these older devices are either going to hold back development of apps and games because developers are going to want to cater to the largest audience, which means that you're going to have to target the Meta Quest 2, which means that even if the Quest 3 does have more power, something like what we're seeing with the PlayStation VR 2 right now, is that even if it does have more power to uh, create better experiences, you're not going to take advantage of that because you want to make sure that the most amount of people can actually buy the thing you're creating. Uh, And there's either going to be that issue or the issue of people who bought the MetaQuest 2, which is a huge audience, Mm -hmm. is going to feel left behind by the lack of hardware. So I would love for them to maybe create something in the future that allows you to maybe the processing can be in a, in a module that you can plug in and out of different headsets. If you want the headset on its own, you can get something relatively cheap and you can also get the specs higher um, to compete with something like the PSVR 2. And then you can have a separate cost for like, okay, well, this is the actual processing module. You plug it into, I don't know, the bottom of the device and stuff like that and you can get uh, your processing and it's upgradable so in two years when a new version comes out you can just buy that as opposed to a whole new headset don't know if that's something that they will ever do but there's two really cool things ab- about this news here one i think a lot of people forget just how popular the MetaQuest 2 is like I, I just went on best buy's website and there's hundreds and hundreds of reviews of these devices 
And it's so positively reviewed. It's got like a 4.7 out of 5 in terms of user ratings. This was the first device to make VR, uh, I don't want to say mainstream, but close to mainstream. It, it's what brought it to the masses and got people really excited about it. And the idea of a, of a sequel to that, I think, is really, really exciting. And I think that's a, a place where the MetaQuest Pro really missed out. It was such a flagship priced and, and really expensive device that anybody who was interested in upgrading the Quest Pro, Pro Quest 2 would never consider getting the Quest Pro. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what they do there. But yeah, I, I think overall, a lot of this news, especially with the price cuts, as a matter of fact, right now, um, so the 256 gigabyte model is sold out on Best Buy in the States right now. But because of that, I, I guess maybe people just got really excited about this press, price drop and decided to pick them up. Right now, you can actually get the uh, the 128 gigabyte model for 30 to 70 dollars off right now as oh, well. Really? Um, and who knows if that that uh, price cut will stick around? But that's something interesting. But also to note on Best Buy's website, there was also the price cut of 500 dollars of the MetaQuest Pro. But right now, Best Buy is still selling it for 1500 dollars US. <laughs> so I don't know if maybe this is a situation where. They picked up a bunch of these headsets and they don't want to lower the price because they don't want to lose out on the margins that maybe they they uh, originally bought these headsets at. And maybe Meta is not going to reimburse them for this price cut. Or maybe this price cut is something like what we saw in the past where it's just a temporary thing. I hope not because I think this device definitely needs, you know, more people to get their hands on it. it it's it's way overpriced right now. But yeah, it's just an interesting thing. And I think this is 100 percent. Uh, in response to the PlayStation VR 2 and the really positive impact that that's been giving. But I don't know, do you feel like this is Meta trying to compete with the PSVR 2? Do you think that maybe they they know the Quest 2 is, is just going to always be more popular than that device? Or are they actually scared of what PlayStation is doing? Uh, I don't think they're scared, but I definitely do think this is in response to the PSVR 2. I think because mm-hmm. it was so well received and you know their last product that they released wasn't received well. A lot of people yeah. had negative reviews. You know, as you said, it's very overpriced, very overpriced for the market right now. And I think, I think they know that, yeah, okay, we have a large market share when it comes to VR stuff. And they want to maintain that market share and they don't want to lose it. So, you know, I think the fact that they've canceled the Quest Pro 2 for now and they're focusing on the Quest 3 makes a lot of sense, right? They, they understand that, okay, we have to release this thing the right way and we need to get people on board with this so that you know so that people still see us as a leader when it comes to vr i think that's the big thing they understand that they're in the in the lead and they want to keep the lead and the price drop is definitely needed for both (laughs) it's definitely needed for the quest pro and it's definitely welcome for the quest 2 and whether or not they're sold out on best buy because of the price drop or just because you know it's a well-received device doesn't matter but i think it's good news it's good publicity let's say for the meta quest and yeah i think it's setting them up to have a good release for the quest 3 now whether or not the rumors of the front-facing camera are true whether or not the rumors of the 450 dollars price tag are true i think right now they are they're in the good books when it comes to people talking about ar in VR, right? They've maybe stolen a little bit of the spotlight back from PlayStation because right now everyone's just talking about how good the hardware is for PlayStation. Yeah. 
so as I mentioned before, sort of this information about the the roadmap for Meta, it's come from a, or it's been leaked, I guess. And the reason it's been leaked is there was a Reality Labs division meeting, which is the division of Meta that handles their AR, that handles their VR. And they had a presentation last Tuesday where they were talking about, okay, we are focused on the Quest 3. We're not focused on anything else right now. This is, you know, our bread and butter, the Quest lineup. So we want to make sure we do this right. And apparently in this meeting, they've kind of admitted that, hey, we are struggling right now engaging new users. So yes, they may be selling other devices, but when users get this, these devices, they aren't as engaged as the people who originally bought the Quest lineup. I mean, which is, mm-hmm. which kind of makes sense, right? Quest was the first pretty mainstream, or it was the most mainstream VR device that we've seen, right? So early adopters getting into it, yeah, they're going to be pretty engaged. But they've admitted in, in their, their latest meeting, they've admitted that, hey, we need to do better at growth and retention and resurrection of our users, right? Which is, is it because of PlayStation? I don't want to, I don't think so. I think it's just, you know, your early adopters are going to be very interested. And as the market becomes more saturated and more people are interested in, in VR, just because, you know, you're brought in your umbrella, there's going to be people less interested. And I guess one of my questions that comes up from that is like, hey, if you know that you have a problem with retention and engaging users, why are you canceling a game like Echo VR? You know, yeah. being a dead horse, but we talked about this a couple of episodes ago at least. But, you know, you we said this at the time that, hey, this is a very successful game for you. It's getting amazing reviews. It's so popular. It has its own eSport. If you're looking for some way to engage new people and get new people interested in VR, this is it. This is something that's already successful. And not even, not even the fact that they were, let's say, shifting focus from it. They were completely canceling it. They weren't supporting it. Users couldn't even play it or won't be able to play it anymore. So, you know, maybe they're canceling it. You know, I'm doing air quotes right now. No one can see me. Maybe they're canceling it so that when the Quest 3 comes out, there's a Echo VR 2, a new upgraded version that's, you know, enhanced by the capabilities of their new headset. But at the moment, if you're looking to engage users, especially new users, and you have something that is engaging users already, it doesn't make sense to cancel that in your roadmap. At least it doesn't make sense to me, but I don't know. Do you have anything to say about them in general, you know, growing and retaining users? I mean, just to reiterate exactly what you said, I I wonder if them not being able to retain engagement has anything to do with, like you said, canceling one of the most popular games that they have, but also focusing on work as opposed to fun experiences like i don't know if you're gonna capture engagement when the entire marketing lead up to the quest pro was about hey this is how you're gonna work in the future yeah and all of the reviews were people talking about yeah i was you in the virtual office like who's gonna be interested in watching someone be in a virtual office yeah whereas playstation is showing resident evil village and gran turismo and horizon like it's it's star they're wars. showing things star wars yeah they're showing things that people actually want to do uh in vr and i think that's maybe what meta needs to focus back on is like hey let's talk about actual fun things that people want to do in vr instead of the boring stuff that no one really cares about 
Yeah. So speaking a little bit about the future of Meta, they're apparently working on a Quest Lite, which is supposed to be, I guess, a scaled down version of the Meta Quest. Now, they're supposed to come out with the Quest 3 this year. It's supposed to have front-facing cameras that allow pass-through mode. I'm imagining the Quest Lite isn't going to have that. Maybe it's going to be thinner than the Quest 2. It's going to lack the front-facing camera, so you don't have that AR feature. But, you know, if people are saying, hey, $450 is a little bit too steep for me, $400 is probably still a little too steep for me, the Quest Lite is rumored to come in at $300 which if you want to get people interested in VR, I think that's a pretty good price point. Those aren't supposed to come out until 2024. So we still have, you know, we still have some time before that. But I don't know. I think that's definitely another good move by Meta if they follow through with that. And even more into the future, they're looking to release their first pair of full-fledged AR glasses for 2027. Now, these glasses are supposed to be controlled by a neural interface band, like a wrist device slash watch kind of thing. And it's supposed to allow you to control the glasses with hand movements. Like imagine a virtual controller that you're holding and just swiping on a D-pad and it will control the glasses and what you see on the glasses. It's eventually, eventually when they release more versions, you'll be able to use a virtual keyboard. So you won't have to have like, a touch keyboard or a keyboard projected on a desk. You're just going to be typing your hand. Or you're just going to be moving your hands like you're typing on a keyboard. And it's going to, it's going to be the input for you typing through your glasses. Now, Meta's vision of this is, okay, they're going to, they're going to be devices that you wear for the entire day in terms of the AR glasses, in terms of the neural interface band watch. Mark Zuckerberg says he sees it as the holy grail device that will redefine our relationship with technology by the end of this decade. So 2027, by the time we get to 2030, they envision everyone using these devices. He envisions it's going to replace the smartphone. And what they've said is that, hey, there are 2 billion pairs of regular glasses sold every year. There are hundreds of millions of smartwatches sold every year. So the market for a smartwatch slash glasses device it's huge right it's it's astronomical so if they could capture a small market of those two billion pairs of glasses or hundreds of millions of smartwatches, i mean that's a pretty big deal but have you heard anything about this quest light have you heard anything about these ar glasses and the neural interface watch which one sounds i guess more compelling to you i know you're someone who typically isn't interested in vr i know you don't like VR headsets, but do AR glasses paired with a smartwatch sound more compelling to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the ultimate dream of, you know, uh, augmented reality, a kind of HUD over, you know, your glasses and stuff like that to kind of replace something like the smartwatch or even the cell phone. But it's just the more we see things like the Enreal glasses, like the Airs and, and like the MetaQuest Pros and stuff like that, where... You know, a lot of the, the complaints around the MetaQuest Pro was just how much it weighed. Mm-hmm. And the idea of shrinking tech like that down into something that's comfortable and light and doesn't look weird is kind of hard to envision. I think we also talked about this with the the Apple version that I think was delayed or, or I don't think it was canceled, but I think it might have been delayed, like their version of AR glasses. Uh, it's just really, really hard to imagine what that would be like. And even when it does come out, I imagine it's going to be something like the first smartphones where they're 
you know, really thick and small and, and not as useful as they are today. It took a long time for us to get to where smartphones are right now. I think a lot of us don't remember what smartphones were like before the <laughs> iPhone 4. But yeah, it, they were, you know, they weren't great. So it's just, it's kind of hard for me to envision how they pull something like this off, especially with the technology that we have today. We can make really, really small and thin OLED displays. Uh, and then, yeah, I can understand the idea of maybe pairing that with something that's like a band on your wrist. Maybe that's where the processing is. But then how do you get that connection? Is it a wireless kind of a situation? Um, are, are you just foregoing displays altogether and, and maybe just having a projection system kind of like what Google Glass was like. It's just, it's a weird kind of thing to envision what that actually turns out being. So I'm kind of excited to see what their version of an AR glasses looks like. I'm also excited to see what Apple's version looks like, but it's just really hard for me to believe that it's something that will exist and dethrone uh, smartphones as like the, the go-to piece of tech that you, you walk around with you every day. Yeah. I mean, do you, can you see it? Can you see... Because this is the thing, I'm excited for the day where we don't have to walk around with cell phones anymore. I, I've been a very big fan of, of smartwatches to the point where I, when I used to daily wear a smartwatch, there'd be many times where I would just go with that and not my phone. Are you interested at all in, in the future of, of smart glasses, AR glasses, where they completely replace your smartphone? And do you see them being either, like you mentioned in the past, uh, ski goggles where you know they're kind of more bigger or do you envision them actually getting to the point where they can be as minimalist as glasses that we have today i'm i'm both excited for it and don't i don't see myself completely adopting it mm. i'm excited for it just because of you know when we're talking about advancing technology yeah I, I mean i'd love to see new technology and hear about new technology you know hence we have this podcast right and you know you brought up a good point it's sort of like a heads-up display that you get from a video game just in real life which i think would be insanely cool to see i'd have a smart watch i definitely like having a smart watch and my only my only reservation with the glasses is that the thing i like about having a phone is that i can put the phone down mm. if i want to work if I want to be super productive and not get distracted by anything, I can say, okay, put my phone off to the side. I'm not going to look at it until I get this task done or until I get this work that I have set out done. So I like that about having a phone. If we have glasses that we were supposed to wear the entire day, it's very easy for something to pop up and distract you, especially when it's okay. It's not your phone on a desk. It's something literally like right in front of your eyes, right in front of your face. So it doesn't matter what you're doing, your ability to, to get stuck in a rabbit hole of either social media or maybe you're reading an article through your glasses or who knows what's going on. It's just, it's literally that in your face of technology that you can escape if you're wearing these glasses all day long. Now, okay, I think it would definitely make things a lot easier, a lot simpler if I'm Let's say I'm going for directions instead of holding out my phone and staring at my whole, you know, staring at my phone when I'm walking down the street or when I'm doing whatever. Yeah, a heads up display would be a lot simpler than that. If I get a text message, instead of having to take my phone out of my pocket, it just automatically popping up and I can say either, yes, I want to re reply to that or let me snooze that for 10 minutes. That'd be a lot simpler having, having glasses on and having that pop up on your glasses. 
I guess my one another one of my reservations would be I don't know if I want Meta to be the one to do that. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of it, but do I trust Meta to be the one I have in front of my face all day long? You know, in part of their whole roadmap discussion, they've talked about, hey, our ability to, you know, track conversations through WhatsApp and recommend stuff to people or our ability to serve ads on Instagram and how much easier it would be to serve ads. You know, if you go to a store and you say, hey, you know, this store that you're in is featuring these items 50 percent off that we know that you like. It's a lot harder to escape that when it's on your glasses and it's a lot harder to escape that when it's someone like Meta. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea of it, the technological idea of it. Yeah, I definitely want to see that. But I don't know if personally I will or if people at large will say Meta is the one that we want the entire day. Right. Apple, I could see it being more of Apple. I could see it even being more of Google because I at least feel like those two companies aren't as intrusive with their ads. Mm -hmm. Right. But. But yeah, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. And I guess the last question you asked, I see it being more glasses, not necessarily a ski goggle. Mm. I think a ski goggle would definitely be easier. But if people are wearing ski goggles all day long, I think people will get some funny looks. Unless, of course, it's an Apple ski goggle, then yeah, that's 100% what's going to happen. And that's what's going to be the mainstream and everyone's going to copy Apple. But even when you look at like our our parents or older generations... I don't see them wearing a ski goggle no matter who sells it. They're not <laughs> as easily influenced. So I see if we were talking about, okay, mainstream adoption, I see it being more of just, you know, a traditional looking pair of sunglasses or even a traditional pair of glasses, right? Because when we talk about 2 billion pairs of regular glasses, if you say, hey, in 10 years, when you go to your optometrist, you'll be able to buy Meta's Quest glasses or Apple's, uh, you know, Apple iGlass Pro or, you know, Google's Pixel Glass Elite or Samsung Glass Ultra. Yeah. Right. And that's covered by, hey, that's covered by your insurance provider. That's covered by your benefits. I, yeah, I could see that being a lot more of a widespread adoption as opposed to the ski goggles. Of course, unless Apple makes them, then yeah. (laughs) On to our second topic of the day, an update on artificial intelligence news. Now, recently, ChatGPT has released an API, which means you're going to start seeing ChatGPT and those types of functions in a lot more places. So now businesses can add ChatGPT tech into their apps, their websites, their products and services. And a couple of early adopters include Snapchat, Quizlet, Instacart, and Shopify. Now, just because it's chat GPT, it's not necessarily a chat bot. It's more the, the technology behind chat GPT that's allowing these new features that we're getting. Now, one instance is Snapchat has added a function for Snapchat plus subscribers, which is called my AI, which is a chat bot service. So very similar to chat GPT, but then you have other places like Quizlet, which has added a new virtual tutor feature and Shopify, which has an API. That's sort of like a virtual assistant when it comes to your shopping. So when you're shopping, you can ask this, this Shopify assistant, like, hey, what sort of stuff do you think I'd be interested in? Or I bought this outfit. What type of things would go with this thing that I just bought? And I think, 
I think it's, I mean, it's definitely something that you could have predicted coming. I didn't necessarily, I wouldn't say that I was thinking, okay, chat GPT is going to be included into all these things and it's not going to be chatbot. I definitely thought that people were going to start adding chatbots to their services, to their websites, you know, to their applications. But it's definitely an interesting route to take that, hey, it's not necessarily just, you know, this artificially intelligent thing talking back and forth with you. There's other applications for it. So I guess my question to you is, I'm sure you saw these APIs coming, but what are things that you look forward to or what do you think ChatGPT's API is going to be put into next? What would you like to see developed with this? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, it, it's, it's funny because there's, there's definitely like the possibilities that we've seen, like integrating this kind of tech into search and, you know, chat bots and stuff like that. And I could already, like, even when that was happening, I could already, already envision the potential of that doing things like augmenting customer service, uh, or customer support, stuff like that. You know, I've talked on the podcast in the past about not liking how Microsoft does its support uh, in terms of getting in contact with people. And I hope that's the direction that it doesn't go. I hope that, you know, a lot of these companies don't use this as an excuse to have less uh, FaceTime and ear time with actual people when you have an issue and instead use these models because we've already seen they can be very inaccurate. And I think any time you have uh, a system where a person is supposed to communicate with another person, but instead you put an intermediary in there. Like, um, I don't know if anyone ever remembers, but if, you know, you call a company and then, it's, you know, press one to speak to this department or press two if you have this issue. Mm -hmm. And then for some reason, no matter how many times you call it, the option that you need is never in that list of options. <laughs> and it's it just, it, it goes to show like anytime you have these models, it's impossible to account for just how variable people are and how many kind of different things can kind of happen that we actually need assistance with. And I think the Bing search chat that we've saw in the past have shown that, you know, people can get pretty crazy with their requests and pretty out there and we can get some pretty out there responses because of it. Um, so I, this doesn't really answer your question, but the place that I, I hope it doesn't go is that it doesn't try to supplement or replace actual contact with other people because I think it's not been doing a very good job at that so far. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of where it, it could actually be really fun and useful, I mean, I think, so recently in like software development, video game development, we've been seeing things, and we've talked about this on the podcast a lot, where something like Unreal Engine 5 has been taking over. And the reason why it's been taking over is because the a lot of software development and video game development, the way that it works is you hire a bunch of uh, contractors, essentially. People who, uh, temp workers who will come in, assist you at what you need to do, and when that project is done, they leave. And something that I've noticed in uh, my personal experience in the past is, let's say, for example, you're a company that has a piece of software that's existed for the last 10 years. Chances are the vast majority, if not everyone who's worked on that piece of software no longer works for that company. And what happens is no one knows how to fix a problem when a problem comes up. And we're starting to see that with something like uh, uh, CD Projekt talking about how the next version of Cyberpunk is going to be built on Unreal Engine because a lot of the expertise that worked on Red Engine and Cyberpunk 2077 and a lot of the issues that they came up was 
due to a lack of experience. But because Unreal Engine 5 is so ubiquitous, there are people who are going to school and that's the engine that they're learning. There are people who are coming out of school and every game that they work on is built off of that engine. So there's no shortage of expertise. I think these tools can be a great way of saying, hey, this is our software, our bespoke software, whether it's Red Engine or the random software that a random company has been using for 10 years. Let's put that software base into this chat GPT model and have it teach the next generation of software developers things about it. Like, okay, no, this is how it works. This is what this issue is. This is how you can fix it. And I don't know if that will necessarily work, but I think that could definitely help in a situation that we don't actually have a solution for, which is how do we train people, new people, new employees on legacy software where the expertise just doesn't exist anymore? Mm. Um, and I know that's kind of like a really convoluted and maybe not exciting thing, but I think that's something that can actually be used. But I think this goes back to my original point is that I think right now a lot of people are looking for reasons to put this into their their workflow and into their programs that aren't necessarily useful or good. And I think Bing was a perfect part of that. Like when it came out and people were trying it, people were like, yeah, this is cool, but it also doesn't really work. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people were like, yeah, but Google's still what I'm going to use because it's accurate and it gets the job done. So, yeah, I think a lot of times companies are looking for a problem as opposed to solving a solution, uh, solving a problem that already exists. Um, so, yeah, none of these kind of implementations get me super excited so maybe it's just it, i gotta wait until someone finds like an, a genius reason for this but yeah I, I really don't want it to be used to replace people essentially like whether it's ai art or you know uh, customer service and stuff like that I, I think that's just not really all that exciting or useful overall but i don't know i could be wrong do you do you think that we are getting closer to the point where we maybe don't need customer service and we can just have everything through chatbots or uh, maybe are we just a little bit too optimistic of what this tech actually is? I think we're, I think people are very optimistic about what this tech actually is, but mm. I agree with you. I, I don't think we should replace customer service with this chatbot or with not this, but just chatbots in general. Cause like the thing about customer service, usually when people call in, or I don't know, when I call in at least, usually it's, it's not an easy solution to a question or it's not a, an easy answer or, or answer to whatever problem I have. Yeah. Usually there's a lot of nuance to it. Usually there's a lot of, okay, the person I'm talking with has to go into the systems and, hey, you know, there was, a, there was something that was supposed to be applied to your account that wasn't applied to your account. I need to find out why that happened. I need to find out, okay, it's not a simple fix of, I just have to flip this switch. It's okay, I have to call this manager and then talk with this person. So what chatbots are good at are easy answers, which is why it's being used for search so easily. It's okay, we can scan the internet quickly. We have all of this information in our database. And when you ask a question, it's it's sort of something that it's already been asked before, or it's something that exists somewhere out there in the ethos of the internet. So it can provide you a pretty accurate answer. Yeah. But let's say if I'm calling you know, the customer service for my telecommunications company, it's not something simple as like, hey, why did you guys charge me an extra $50 than I was supposed to on this account? And it's like, oh yeah, well, here's your answer. Because, you know, it's somewhere out there on the internet. Usually there's a lot of digging that has to happen from the person on the other end of the phone. And I don't think, or at least from my experience and what I've seen, 
that's not what chatbots are good at, right? When you ask them abstract questions, that's not an easy answer for them because that's not what they were built for. They're not necessarily built for problem solving. It's just they're built for, you have a question, here's an answer to your question, right? We like to say that, hey, they're creative, but they're not really creative. It's just a big encyclopedia that you're asking a question. Mm -hmm. So I think that right now people are kind of giving chatbots a lot more credit. And I say that because, you know, you see headlines like, oh, this chatbot, you know, chat GPT took this test and, you know, mm -hmm. open AI took the bar exam. But it's like, all right, they may have taken it, but they didn't pass it because they can't problem solve and you can't easily find the answer on the internet. So that's why they don't have the answers and they mm -hmm. can't come up with their own answers. So I think, yeah, okay, there's a lot of hype behind them. I don't think they're necessarily what the media at large is making them out to be. And I don't think we're going to replace customer service jobs. And I don't think we should replace customer service jobs with these chatbots and with OpenAI and whatever else there is out there. But, you know, speaking about Bing and speaking about chatbots, I think it was last episode or maybe a couple episodes ago, we mentioned how Microsoft admitted that, hey, yeah, our chatbot has been pretty crazy. It's been, you know, responded to stuff it's not supposed to respond to and given answers that definitely it wasn't programmed to give answers. And we talked about, hey, they're going to, in the future, add sort of like adjustment dials to how creative or how informative their Bing chatbot will be. And they've released these updates now, or they've released this these dials and adjustment knobs to their Bing chatbot. And so now you can toggle between a more creative answer, a more balanced answer, and a more precise answer. And the creative tone naturally would be something that's more original and imaginative. And I say, I'm doing air quotes again for you guys out there because you can't see. <laughs> because it's not really original and imaginative. It's not making anything up. It's seeing, okay, these are different answers that have been given. So let me take from these different ones. It's not coming up with anything new. Their precise mode will be more precise, will be more accurate, will be more relevant. It will be more factual and concise with the answers that it gives you. Now, if you don't choose between any of these toggles, it's just going to default to balance mode, which would be balanced between accuracy and creativity in the answers that it gives you, which means that these new toggles are going to significantly reduce the amount of the amount of times that Bing just doesn't respond. Because as we mentioned in the last couple of episodes, you know, they've put these limits on what Bing can answer to. And sometimes if you add, if you ask it a question that's uh, maybe a little bit more provocative, it just won't answer your question. So now with these toggles, it will be able to provide maybe a few uh, a few more answers to questions that are off the rails that Microsoft intended. So I guess, have you heard of these toggles being added? Or I guess, have you, had, have you heard of any new changes or have you seen any headlines in terms of, all right, people were asking these crazy questions and getting these crazy answers and these new toggles have solved the problem? Or are you still seeing you know, stories and headlines of people getting crazy answers from this Bing chatbot. Well, I don't know about you, but what kind of happened in terms of the, the news cycle is, is kind of what I thought was going to happen, where two things happened. One, people got really, like, just bored of, oh, this is what the chatbot said to me, and, and it was like those stories got old and, and people just stopped reporting about them. But for me, Bing chat, 
just kind of completely fell out of the news cycle for me. People weren't really talking about it anymore. And I think that was kind of a negative for Microsoft. I think they wanted more conversation, even if it was the, oh, look at this, that chatbot, this unhinged response that this chatbot gave me. It, maybe it's sentient or, you know, you don't feel what they're, <laughs> they're interesting takes. But so I, I understand why Microsoft would want to put this toggle back in, because like you mentioned in, in previous podcasts, people spent hours with this chatbot just asking questions and asking questions and, and you know, trying to find out either interesting takes from the chatbot or just really unhinged takes because it was fun. And I think they want to integrate that fun back into it, which they kind of took out of it when they added in more of the limitations uh, to make sure that it didn't go off the rails. But yeah, so I, I think this is a, a smart move from them to make it more fun and to give people that option to be fun with it like it was when it originally came out. Um, as for the toggles, I'm not really surprised because that was similar to how the original chat GPT worked, which is there would be certain things that it just wouldn't do. But if you said you wanted it to do it in a creative way. Like if you asked a question that the chatbot said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. You could then say, okay, well, pretend you're, I don't know, a poet and answer that question as if you were a poet and then would do it. Uh, so there was just like that kind of, okay, this isn't really what the stuff was built for. But if you can say, do it in a creative way, then it will do it because it's not, it's, it's, you know, there's a completely different context around it. Mm-hmm. And people had a lot of fun with that. So, yeah, I would imagine Microsoft would have integrated that into Bing as well. People could have a lot of fun with it. And I think they should lean into that because from what I can see right now, yes, ChatGPT and OpenAI and, and Dolly and all these things are very news friendly right now. People are really excited about these topics. But it doesn't change the fact that Google, as we talked about last week when they took away news from my chat, from my search, <laughs> is still the most useful version of search that exists on the internet even more useful than websites own search so and i don't think that's going to change anytime soon so if they really want to gather a user base you kind of have to make it fun and uh yeah i think this is a a step in the right direction for them yeah another development in ai news or i guess ai space is tiktok has this new ai powered filter which is called their bold glamour filter. Now I don't know, I know that you're not on TikTok. You know, you're not a TikToker. You're not doing any dances or anything. <laughs> but uh, it's making headlines because it's it's almost like an evolution in terms of face filters. Now filters were I guess popularized by Snapchat. I don't think anyone was doing them. I'm sure people were doing them before, but I say at least that's where the mainstream, that's where filters became mainstream. Uh, now, what's different about this bold glamour filter is it's likely using generative adversarial networks, just in a fancy term for a type of AI. And what's, I guess, so revolutionary about this is it shows how AI-powered tools can make face transformations harder to detect and even better at transforming how people actually look. Now, typically with filters, you know, you point the camera at your face and it takes a 2D image of your face and it maps it out into an exaggerated 3D model. So it looks at your face and says, okay, the shadows are this way around their nose. It's this way around their cheeks. So because the shadows fall this way, we are estimating this is the shape of their face. So when we apply the filter, it's to this estimated 3D model. 
So when you do things like if you move your face or if there's something slightly blocking your face, the filter work will kind of warp and glitch out and it won't work properly. Or sometimes the filter will be like sideways on your face, right? This new generative adversarial network is different because you can have your hand in front of your face, can touch your, you know, your, your eyebrows, your forehead, whatever. And it's not going to affect how this filter is applied to you. So it actually looks like this is how your face looks right now. It's not something like a, you know, a cat face or a dog face right now, which is, you know, how Snapchat became so popular. It's, it's sort of, it's a, it's a beauty filter. It's called bold glamour. So it, it does things like it's, it makes your eyebrows more defined. It's, it puckers your lips. It it makes you look like you have a bigger smile when you're smiling. It's, it's contouring your face and it's, it almost looks like it's putting makeup on some people and some people it's restructuring their face, but it's not a typical filter where if you move or you tilt the camera a certain way, it's just going to glitch out and stop working. It looks like it's your face. And this is kind of like a, uh, I don't know, it's almost like an inflection point when you look at when you look at the digital landscape and how we're representing ourselves, right? Because typically if someone puts a filter on, you can say, okay, yeah, that's definitely a filter. And if, unless they stand the perfect way, then the filter's not going to work. Or if they're having a, a conversation with you, right? You can't, you can't be on FaceTime or you can't be having a video conversation or Zoom with someone with a filter on because it's going to be very obvious once they move, the filter's not going to work. But, you know, we're kind of, getting to a point, and this is just a small example on TikTok, but it's, if it's possible on TikTok, then it's possible anywhere, really. You could be having a conversation on Zoom, and this generative adversarial network filter is being applied to them, and they look like someone completely different, and it's not glitching, it's not warping, it's not distorted. You will have no idea what this person actually looks like with the possibility of these type of filters, right? Now, I'm I'm not sure if you've seen this, as I said, you're not on TikTok, but I guess what are your thoughts on, on this advancement in filter technology, right? Because just to, I guess, take it back a generation, when you look at games like, you know, World of Warcraft or EVE Online, or just, you know, these mass online games, you could represent yourself however you want, right? I mean, you could be an elf, you could be a troll, you could be a human, you could be a male and have a female character. You could be a female and have a male character. And you don't, no one knows what you actually look like. But, you know, I'm saying in the real world here, in, in quotes, in the real world, when you see someone, you know that's, okay, this is the person. This is, this is what they actually look like. But pretty soon we could get to a point where, you know, thanks to these generative adversarial networks and the, this advancement in filter technology, you could be looking at someone on a video chat and think this is the actual person I'm talking to and it's nothing like them. But I guess what are your, you know, what are your thoughts on this advancement in filters technology and have you seen any examples of this yet? Uh, I haven't seen any examples of this, uh, this particular thing, but I have seen like filters being used in the past to make people look completely different. And I, I know what you're saying, like in the past, even for, for like a person to look like a completely different person, they were really restricted in how they could move. If they moved too fast, the filter would kind of disappear or, you know, the, the software that was tracking their face would break. And all of a sudden you see the person behind the mask kind of a thing. Um, so the idea of this being a more 
better tracking, you know, just a much more impressive version of that it makes sense. I haven't seen it at all, but I, I could absolutely picture it in my mind of of what it could be. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where as much as I don't use Snapchat or or TikTok or any of these things, I always hear about these filters and how people are really interested in them and and even like people making animated versions of themselves or even VTubers who have exploded in what felt like a very short amount of time. There's always this this kind of, I guess, push uh, for people to have more creative ways of expressing themselves on the internet because it's possible. So yeah, I think this is kind of an interesting thing and I, I imagine it's going to be really profitable for TikTok uh, of maybe fighting back some of the competition of what YouTube has been doing by saying, hey, you know, you can make, you can be a creator and you don't actually have to look like you, uh, which one could be great for privacy, uh, but two could also just be, you know, a, another fun option, kind of like what Snapchat did with, with filters. Like I, I can't, I can't remember how many times, you know, someone, I'd be in the car with someone and they point their phone at you and be like, Hey, look what this app can do to your face. And like <laughs> people got a lot of enjoyment out of it. Um, so yeah, you know, TikTok taking that to another step. I, I can imagine people are going to have a lot of fun. And then, you know, it just goes to the thing of like, yeah, if it's on the internet, it's not real life, right? It's it's, it's always going to be a, an interpretation or, or an exaggeration of what it is. And yeah, it just makes sense for, for TikTok to kind of exploit that as much as possible. As an old person, to me, it's kind of, kind of creepy and, and in some cases a little weird, but also kind of fun. So yeah. I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing overall. Is, is this something that, that you're excited to get using? I don't know if you use TikTok at all, but is this something that you're excited to use in the future? Uh, definitely not excited to use it in the future. Definitely not. Uh, I've sent you a link. Mm-hmm. I want you to watch this and we're going to get we're going to see what you think about it. I'll okay. include the link in the show notes. And then afterwards, I'll dive into the rabbit hole of my thoughts around this but yeah mm. check out the video yeah i'm watching it right now hmm. <laughs> okay so i watched uh, a bit of the video and it's funny it isn't as surprising to me as maybe you might think um so i've been using huawei phones and xiaomi phones for a while now um and <laughs> <laughs> this video is actually really funny. Um, for some reason, these phones have the weird default option of like this beautify mode when you take a picture. And it's just really weird looking. And it, it's designed for specific markets where, you know, they want people want to look a certain way in their selfies and stuff like that. And I don't take pictures a lot, so it's not something that I notice. But like, I remember one time I had to take a picture for a work ID, and I used my phone, and the picture that came out of it was the most shocking thing. I was like, "That's not me." <laughs> so yeah, this is something I've definitely had uh, experience with. I will say this: it kind of it it doesn't look real. It looks like um like maybe someone is just wearing a ton of, of makeup, but it definitely has a digital aspect to it. I definitely think this is going to get a lot better over time. But the mm-hmm. one thing I will say is that uh, I could also see why people would want to use this. And I don't know, I haven't watched the, the entire video yet, but 
I wouldn't be surprised. And I, you can let me know if, if, if you feel better about this or, or, or worse about this or how you feel about this overall. But I kind of expect it to be a situation where you can look like a completely different person because these changes are pretty drastic, but there's still the person behind it. I'm kind of curious to see when we get like the full on, when we get VTubers who look like actual people mm-hmm. um, and you're a completely different person, you're just essentially voice acting that at that point, which I, I'm not going to lie for some people it could probably be a lot of fun. So uh, I've, I've heard of the, or I've seen the, you know, the filters at Huawei and Xiaomi, you know, those type of phones apply to people. I've seen those before where you can, you know, make your lips bigger or smaller or cheekbones high. I've seen all of that stuff before. So yeah, this is, this is very similar to that. Mm-hmm. My problem or where I see this being problematic, and this is sort of like a broader conversation about just where the internet is going in general. And I kind of, I, put this down as a possible topic idea, but I didn't really want to talk about it. So it's, I guess it's kind of interesting that we're coming back to it now. So recently, recently in the news or this video going around, this lady thought she was married to Omarion. Now, if, I don't know, depending on how old people are, they might not know who Omarion was. He's a singer from his group B2K in like the 2000s boy band. Uh, he's a pretty popular guy. Mm-hmm. This lady thought she was married to him. Because she was having text conversations with someone who said they were Omarion. She had never met him. This person said that they were Omarion. They'd bought a ring. Uh, They couldn't give her the ring yet because she never met them in person. And they weren't allowed to meet because their manager, Omarion's manager, wanted her to pay $3,000 in order to meet him. So she, in her mind, thought that she was married to Omarion. I think she paid like $300 to be in his fan club for whatever reason. When you're married to someone, you need to pay to be in their fan club. Um, And she was contemplating paying $3,000 in order to meet the person she's supposed to be married to. And her friend was like, okay, I've had enough of this. I'm bringing you on Dr. Phil. We're going to expose this. And then (laughs) Dr. Phil actually got Omarion on camera to send the video and say like, hey, just so you know... I'm not married to you. You have not been talking to me. You haven't sent money to me. For any of my fans out there, I will never ask you for money. I will never, I probably will not be texting you. If it is a a valid text from Omarion, it will be, you know, through this verified Omarion fan club number that he gave out. And he said, if you are ever talking with me, you know, on social media, it will be from a verified account with a blue check mark. And I heard that and I was like, ooh, wait a minute. That is, I'm I'm not going to say a very old, but that is an old sentiment Mm. in the current landscape of technology, in the current landscape of social media, right? Because one thing we've been talking about is, hey, now Twitter, you can pay for a blue check mark. Now Meta has copied them. You can pay for a blue check mark. And my... Mike, the conversation I was thinking of having, which I decided not to, but now we're having anyways, was there is a a very big problem with paying for verification and the fact that people can pay for verification and get a blue check mark. Because, you know, since social media has been around, and it wasn't a it wasn't in the inception of social media, but for most of the time social media has been around, people 
associate a blue check mark with this is a trusted source, whether it's a trusted news source or just a trusted social personality, right? When Twitter originally launched their paid verification, right? We talked about all the headlines that came up because people paid $8, they got a blue check mark and they impersonated celebrities and government officials and official news sources and spouted all kinds of nonsense, right? Now, if you look at, you know, what we're talking about with this, these filters, which can make someone look a different way than they normally look or make someone look completely different than they do. Let's say if we find the same lady again, right? She thinks she's married to Omarion just from text messages. She never spoke, you know, didn't even speak with him on the phone. She didn't get a personalized video from him. None of that, just text messages. Let's say this person, this scammer has a verified account on Twitter, on Instagram, because they have a blue check mark. And it's, this is Omarion. And then they now use a more advanced version of this, this TikTok filter because the filter doesn't make you into someone else yet. Right now, it's just adjusting your facial features to make you more glamorous in the, mm -hmm. in the eyes of TikTok or the t of the algorithm that they're using. But let's say we get to the point where it makes you into a completely different person. It makes you into Omarion. And then you can be having a video chat with this person looking like Omarion with a blue check mark on your verified account, I, yeah, the possibilities for scamming people have exponentially grown with just the blue, just, just with paying for verification. And now with these advanced filters, it's, yeah, I think, as you said, this technology is probably like at its infancy right now. I'm sure it's going to get better and better at changing people's faces and better at making people look like other people. So I think that there will be a lot more scams coming out where it's, I thought I was talking to this celebrity, or I thought I was giving money to this person or this organization, or I thought I was, you know, married to Omarion because he was verified from a blue checkmark account. And I had a video chat with him and it was Omarion. It was like, look at, I recorded it. This is Omarion I'm talking to, right? So I think people are going to, drastically have to change what you can, can and can't trust on the internet or on a digital space or yeah it's i think it's going to change things a lot with this paid verification with these face filters and i'm sure it's only going to get become a bigger problem from here yeah well i mean i think that's that's the the key thing right of like where this could potentially go in terms of how it can be abused and, and used to to kind of trick people um I don't know if, if much of that falls on TikTok, though. I think that's that's just when you have tools, people are going to use them for, for nefarious kind of situations. The one thing I a kind of issue I have with it right now, and I don't know if this is just my my senile brain, but I find it very difficult to find people apart in the real world right now. Um, I think people look very similar to one another because there is... There is a trend, right, of how people want to look um, and, you know, whether it's clothes or, or, or makeup or whatever, across the board, people are, are looking very homogenous and very similar. And I remember this happened to me particularly. Uh, I used to work near a major mall and I remember I went to the mall one day and everyone just looked like Kim Kardashian. 
<laughs> and I thought this was interesting. I was like, they dressed exactly like how Kim Kardashian would look. They used the exact same shade of, of makeup and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, this is really odd. These people all look exactly the same. And one thing about this this filter that, that TikTok is, is using right now is that, honestly, the people look very similar. Like, it, it, it was erasing people's normal features to put on this filter, which is exactly what those Xiaomi and Huawei beauty mode filters do as well. It kind of erases people's, you know, natural features and puts this generic kind of feature set on top of them of, of what people may want to look like. And for me, just the simplest thing, it just makes it really difficult for me to tell people apart. People just look <laughs> the same to me. But then also, I think this can kind of skew, um, you know, people's perceptions of, of how people look, which may not be the healthiest thing. And, and you know, I think we have a lot of conversations uh, or I, I shouldn't say we, the, the public has had a lot of conversations about how potentially unhealthy TikTok can be. And maybe this just adds another rung on that, on that of maybe TikTok isn't maybe the best app in the world. You know, we are already seeing it being banned from, from Canadian uh, government officials phones because of potential spying. This is also something that happened in, in Europe, England in particular, and the U S. So yeah, it's just, it's just a weird kind of situation. And for me, if someone's getting old, it just makes it really hard for me to tell people apart. (laughs) All right. And our final, uh, quick little topic for the podcast is the Nintendo switch. This week, March 3rd, 2023 is actually the sixth birthday of the Nintendo Switch console. A console we've talked about a lot on this podcast. We've talked about rumors. We've talked about the Switch OLED. We talked about how we felt about the, the device many times. And I think we're both really big fans of it. Uh, we, we've compared it to things like the Steam Deck and, and even like Ion Neo devices and stuff like that. And I think despite the fact that it's an older device, it's underpowered. We've talked about how it uses, you know, cell phone tech from ugh, like seven eight years ago now uh it's still really really cool and and kind of a a really awesome device but you know it's been six years we've had playstation 5s and xbox series x's launch in that span maybe it's time to see a sequel to the switch uh so i guess you know just to finish this up my question to you is do you have any uh preferences of what you would like the switch to to look like and if you think it will come anytime soon considering we've had this current switch for six years and also, how do you feel about the last six years of the Switch? Do you think it was a success? Do you think it's something that they should continue going forward or maybe go back to a traditional uh, home-style console and maybe a traditional handheld? Uh, or do you think they, they hit it out of the park with the Switch? Uh, I am going to say I think they hit it out of the park, personally. I think they should definitely continue with it. And I definitely think it's time for an upgrade. <laughs> you know, when you, when we look at the numbers, I'm not sure if you have them pulled up now, but... It's, you know, they've done astronomical numbers, right? We've talked before about how many records they've broken. Six years. I mean, I remember picking up my Switch and how excited I was to play The Breath of the Wild when it first came out. And now The Breath of the Wild 2 is coming out and I'm excited to play that too. I think, yeah, I think they hit it out of the park. I think they should continue with it. And I, you know, I definitely think that, and I think it's definitely easy to say, they've kind of revolutionized gaming especially handheld gaming. Before the Switch, handheld gaming was pretty dead, right? It was really just the Nintendo, was it the DS? No, what was it? 3DS. 3DS. It was a 3DS, which was of, you know, a great selling handheld, but obviously very underpowered. And 
outside of the Nintendo fan base, you know, it's not like you weren't having, I guess, the wide adoption that you see from something like a PlayStation or an Xbox, at least when you when you think of, you know, a quote unquote serious gamer. And I think what the Switch did is they showed that you can have a handheld portable device with console level graphics, right? That was the thing. A 3DS, you could tell that was like a, a 3DS game. You were never looking at, at gameplay footage from a 3DS and thinking, oh, wow, this looks like it could be on a home console. Mm-hmm. And when the Switch came out, it was like, no, oh, this is a home console. This, I mean, we talk about it, it being underpowered when it came out, which it was, so it was an underpowered chip. But still, what they were able to produce, especially when you look at a game like Breath of the Wild, what they were able to produce on that handheld console was revolutionary. And because of that, we've gotten consoles like the Steam Deck, like the iNeo, like countless others that have said, hey, people are interested in handheld console level gameplay. And that's because the Switch was so successful. If the Switch wasn't so as successful as it was, we wouldn't have these companies and these devices popping up. I really hope they continue it because I, you know, I think they've hit it out of the park. The fact that you can have a console, a handheld console on the road, and then you can go home and use that same console, and then you can take it up, go back on the road. I think the fact that it's a two-in-one console, handheld, I think everything, every company should be like that. I know PlayStation, Xbox, you can't put the same power as a PS5 or an Xbox Series S or X into a handheld device. I mean, maybe you could, but probably not with how much those fans spin up. I wish every console did that. And I hope Nintendo sticks with the form factor. Obviously, it, you know, it, or probably it might need to change in size or change in dimensions a bit. Just, hey, if, if you want to pack more power into this thing, Maybe that's why they've that's why they haven't put out anything in so long. It's because they're wrestling with, hey, if we want to make this thing more power powerful, which we probably should, we might need to either make the device bigger or make the attachments bigger or make the dock bigger. But I think they should continue with this form factor. Ideally it'd be nice if, you know, you could still use the same Joy-Cons. I'm sure they'll change them up somewhat. They'll change them up a bit. But yeah, I don't know. I'm I've really happy with the past six years it's probably one of my favorite devices ever if not my favorite device ever and i'm definitely looking forward to a sequel to it yeah i don't i think it's i think it's a great device i mean i'm, I'm right there with you i i think it's a fantastic device as well it's right up there with one of my favorite consoles of all time right next to the wii um which i put there because of its its retro stuff and the fact that it's also a gamecube and the fact that it's also a wii um mm-hmm. but you know, the Switch, it's, you know, you also got the best Game Boy games on it now. You got the best Super Nintendo games, specifically from Nintendo. And it just keeps on growing. We're getting more N64 games on it in Switch Online if you're a subscriber to that. And they just released Metroid Prime Remastered, and it looks amazing. And it's a handheld. So, yeah, it's like one of those things where 100%, I, I understand a lot of the, I think we've both seen it, a lot of when the the Steam Deck came out, a lot of people saying how oh, the Switch is you know dumb and Steam Deck is way better than the Switch ever could be and Switch is underpowered and stuff like that. But then you see the things that they actually do with the hardware and just how kind of well the hardware works, like the way it docks, uh, the games that come out for it are, are fantastic. It's just kind of a an amazing device, especially after the Wii U. 
Because if you think about it, the Switch is a very similar concept to the Wii U, except the Wii U is how you do the Switch wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and they kind of, it's funny, it, it felt like they were switching directions, but no, they kind of doubled down on the Wii U and said, no, you know what, that was a mistake, but we can do it better. Yeah. And they did. And it, it just makes me interested, like you, to see what they do in terms of how do they improve the Switch other than just giving it more power. Because, you know, that's easy. You, you can, technology has definitely gotten better since this Switch has come out. And you can do a lot more in the same amount of space in a, in a, a sequel to the Switch. But, you know, the removable Joy-Cons was something that they kind of innovated on. The docking and undocking, the, the kickstand and all that stuff. This is stuff that they kind of just thought up for this device i'm kind of curious what little kind of things they do for the next one and i really hope joy cons do carry over because mm-hmm. those things are expensive <laughs> yeah yeah uh but yeah i just i i also am excited for the next version of the switch even though I, I think this thing could live for another year or so but the reason why i am excited is i can't wait until physical games that people own start getting you know showing up in garage sales and stuff like that because this is one of those consoles that i want to own a lot of my favorite games and physical versions it's one of the last few consoles where the physical version of the game is actually the game instead of just getting a disc that allows you to download the game the stuff is actually on there and i think that's something that we're gonna miss maybe in maybe even just in the switch too but definitely something that we're not seeing in the playstation 5 and the xbox series those discs don't really have anything on them they're kind of just blank discs and uh yeah i'm kind of really excited to start collecting games for this console because i think it's one of the all-time greats yeah all right take it easy everyone in podcast land catch you in the next episode